This is Milton Walters, and you're listening to Adapting in My Grief. I'm going to be talking to people and hear their stories regarding their experiences with grief, the loss of their loved one, the importance of the support they received, and how they've learned to adapt to a life without their loved one. In Australia, some 5 million people work in small businesses. It accounts for some 44% of the total employment numbers of this country. These are businesses that generally employ under 25 people, sole proprietorships, partnerships, etc. But what happens in a partnership when one of the partners becomes ill, disabled or dies? Well, this happens every day, worldwide, and it happened to Steve Luby of Ruby Entertainment earlier this year when Mark Ruse, his partner for over 20 years, who was ill, died rather suddenly. On its website, it states that Ruby Entertainment is a producer of bold, must-see, thought-provoking and groundbreaking television, film, drama and comedy, and its works are certainly testimony to that. The award-winning Secret River miniseries, the iconic Kath and Kim, and who can forget Fast Forward as they were growing up, at least in their early days. Steve, welcome. How are you? I'm well, Milton. Thanks. And thanks. It's interesting to get that kind of overview of, of small business in relation to my enterprise, Ruby Entertainment. That's uh, nice to think of it that way. Let's start back um, when you and Mark sort of hooked up. I mean, it's over 20 years. Um, Mark did die earlier on this year, as we just mentioned in the intro. But how did you get together? Well, look, we were both at the time that we met, which was, I think, 1998 we met. And at that stage, we were both independent, uh, sole trader television producers. And we met through a mutual friend at a, a pub lunch one day. And uh, I was interested to find in this meeting that Mark and I had many things in common. We were both sole trader television producers, but each of us had worked for a particularly, uh, a particular large TV company in which each of us had been the senior producer some years prior to that. And as it turned out in the discussion, I'd got the job in that organisation that Mark had left. So his vacancy created the job for me. Now, I didn't know him, but we both worked at that organisation, which was the company Artist Services that produced Fast Forward, Full Frontal and many other comedy shows besides. We'd both worked as senior producer at that company for five years, one after the other. Then we'd each gone out on our own and we met on this particular day at a pub lunch in South Melbourne and we had all this stuff in common. Um, and it was just amazing to meet a kindred spirit. Now, we were then in the middle of, uh, you know, our own projects at that time. And I think probably for the next year or so, we didn't even have any contact. And one day out of the blue, Mark rang me up, said, hi, Steve, remember me? Do you want to have a catch up lunch? Which we did. And we started talking about what life as a sole trader, independent TV producer, working from home, surrounded by your kids, trying to scramble to get contract work was like. Uh, and we kind of concluded that we didn't want to be doing that all of our lives individually. But what if we got together and did it and just got a small office and at least we could have somebody to talk to and um, we'd have somewhere to go? <laughs> Um, and uh, so we probably over a six-month period had a discussion, discussions about it and decided that we would, as two independents, hire an office together. And uh, we uh, uh, concluded that arrangement with a lunch at a Carlton restaurant and we went <laughs> to an estate agent in Carlton who found us a little office above King and Godfrey um, uh, Delicatessen and Wine Shop. And Perfect that's, location. <laughs> and we used to 
we used to joke, we used to tell our clients that, in fact, we had a little dumb waiter uh, with a little, uh, you know, a little um, uh, pulley system where we could go down to King Godfrey and just haul up the latest bottle of Grange for lunch. <laughs> so that's how we started. We started in a little office um, above King and Godfrey in Ligon Street in January the 1st, 2000. So is the is is a producer's role just for you know probably my benefit and those listening, is that the sourcing of projects or the think tank that brings projects together and then has to find work out how to finance them and bring them to market? That, look, that's that, that's a good way of summarising it. Uh, you could say project manager as a way of thinking about it. Um, another way of thinking about it, which I uh, like to think is is a, is a way of conceiving of the range of. of um, uh, responsibilities that you have as a producer is that you produces the person or persons who are there from day one till the project closes. And that's usually the producer's the only person there for that duration. All the other people in a project come in uh, for ver- to do various roles, but the producer's the, at the beginning and at the end, so is thus the overseer. Okay. So what were the early days like? Here you are sitting up there in this little office. I mean... Do you look at each other and go, okay, where do we start? Well, it was literally like that because we both, um, each of us as independent producers had things that we were working on which were potentially income generating for us as individuals. But what we decided to do was that the next project that we did was going to be a mutual one. So whoever got that project up, we were going to pool our money. And um, so if I ended up getting a project uh the money for that would go into our company account and Mark and I would share it and vice versa. Um, so that was our mentality at the start. Um, we literally were looking at each other and our office, by the way, was pretty small. It hadn't been renovated in 40 years. It didn't have air conditioning. We had second-hand desks, old computers and a filing cabinet that Mark had got from a previous office of his, which had been there for 30 years. That Probably filing was as heavy as lead. Oh, it was heavy anyway. So, so it, was a, it was a pretty smell of an oily rag operation. So we had to come up with ideas to generate income. And we each, Mark had four kids, I had three. They were all primary school age. There was a certain imperative here to actually make a living. And fortunately, um, very early on, we got approached by a, a corporation who wanted a, a corporate um, training video done. And we both did that together, and it actually paid in quite a lucrative way. And that probably within two months, we got that gig. And uh, that enabled us to set, set sail. Right. So what was some of the earlier pro- – when did you start to get rolling in terms of some of the you know the earlier projects and what were they? Well, look, our early projects, at the time that we entered that office, I was working on the development of what became uh, quite a big project and Mark was also working on the development of what became quite a big project. So Mark was working on Kath and Kim and I was working on the Mick Malloy film Crackerjack. Okay. Now, each of us, by virtue of having worked – in the company artist services, which made a lot of comedy, we knew a lot of comedians. And a lot of them started to come to us to discuss project opportunities. So I'd been liaising with Mick Malloy and um, Mark had been liaising with uh, Gina and Jane over Kath and Kim. And um, each of each of those projects got up at about the same time. Now, they weren't pro- – they, it, was, it was a funny situation because we produced them but they weren't projects that our companies had devised at that stage. So um, Gina and Jane and their company, Mark, was working with them and I went and worked with Mick Malloy and his company, but, uh, but we did it out of our office, Ruby Entertainment office. Um, <clears throat> so these were pretty big projects 
and they were both very successful in a short frame of time and all of a sudden, as a result of those, we started to get a lot of inquiries, a lot of people pitching us projects and the work started to flow. Um, so, yeah, look, our first two years were spent doing Kath and Kim and Cracker Jack, so we had a hoot. What a good start. Oh, it was great. It was just such good fun. And, yeah, look, there was a lot of energy and um, all of a sudden we started to get visitors to the office and people pitching us projects and we were suddenly, we were a real thing. Ruby Entertainment was a real thing, you know. Did you stay in the same office or did you move? Oh, no, look, we moved. Look, um, <laughs> it, it really, look, it was, uh, there was a certain personality and character to the office but we needed something a bit more substantial and we, <laughs> and we did move eventually after a couple of years, yeah. It's you know when you look at a, a business like that and you get off to such a flying start and I, and I imagine like most businesses they don't always keep flying like that and there is the ups and downs of it, but during these times I mean how closely you and Mark are obviously you know together every day I mean, imagine you become pretty good friends. Oh you? look, we, we were such great mates and colleagues and kindred spirits you know at, 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 and both work and personally, and I think the thing which really kind of kicked off our connection was the fact that we both had young families at the time. Now, I've heard it said that one reason that lawyers or other professionals set up companies or law firms or engineering firms is so that they can have a holiday, so that the individual can have a holiday and the business keeps going. When you're a sole trader, you can't have a holiday. So to be able to have somebody who understood your family demands, oh, look, I'll have to take tomorrow off because I've got to, you know, I've got, one of the kids is sick and then my wife has to work, et cetera, et cetera. Just to be in that environment, that itself was a huge support. Then on top of that, we both had that comedy background that, um, that I described. So we used to just, we used to laugh all the time. Um, we both had very, very similar experiences working as indie sole producers. So we each knew what the other could do. We each knew what our skill base was. We're very similar in that regard. So there were just so many levels on, on which we connected. Um, now most of the time we didn't talk about that. We just came into the office, did our work, had lunch together, had a bit of a chat, went on with the projects. And, you know, a lot of the time we were just doing our business, but there was always that sense of, kind of you could fall back and rely on the other party because we had so many things in common. Yeah. It's interesting, having been involved in some small businesses myself, um, and we talked about this just uh, recently, is the amount of planning that you do around the business in terms of the projects and you know the revenue and the costs and what have you. But is a lot of planning done in relation to what happens if something happened to one of us? <laughs> well, look, and we certainly did that planning and uh, our first business plan, which we did in those early years, and, and we were coached through it. We got somebody in to coach and help us do a business plan and it was quite an elaborate 60-page document with pie charts and all sorts did of things. Did you look at it? Oh, well, look, we looked at <laughs> Now, well, the funny thing is we did it, then we put it in the bottom drawer <laughs> and then five years later we pulled it out and we said, oh, I remember this. And, and this was in that old filing cabinet right. I mentioned. It was in the bottom of that file. Pulled it out, looked at it. And we'd achieved everything on it. Wow. And without even knowing it. And um, the reason that we, I think, is that when you do a business plan, it makes you focus your attention. Yes. And we, it made us do those things. Yes. But we didn't think about um, any adverse circumstances which might arise. We kind of were on such a roll, I suppose, that we were just going from day-to-day, project-to-project in quite an enjoyable way. And we didn't really think about what might happen if one of us got really sick or one of us wanted to leave the company. 
Yeah. Um, so we, we are quite honestly did not talk about Which is it. interesting just, you know, in relation, and I think that's probably, you know, would happen in a lot of small businesses, but in relation to the comment you said about how we each knew each other's family circumstance. So if I, you need to take tomorrow off because a couple of the kids are sick yeah. or what have you. So there's that sort of, you know, lower level, you know, we understand each other. But, uh, yeah, but yeah. in terms of a more, you know, significant discussion, didn't have it. It didn't happen. And look, the, I guess there were subliminal things there. Um, and look, and, uh, and I think each of us, uh, understood enough of the other and respected the other enough to, to know that each individual had their own life. And it could be the case that one or other of us might decide to leave at some point for personal yes. or professional reasons. And there was a point, um, and this is like 15 years into our time together, where things were not going all that well, and we both decided to look for other paid work what outside that, the roughly? company. That was about 2013. Okay. And um, in the end, uh, each of us applied for a lot of jobs, and um, uh, Mark actually ended up getting a job working for the BBC in Bangladesh. Oh, wow. Uh, so Mark and uh, his wife and some of their younger children went and lived in Bangladesh for about 18 months. And that was because we'd reached one of these scenarios where we just hadn't generated any income for at least a year and we just needed a job. But I kept, I stayed in Melbourne and, uh, you know, kept Ruby Enterprise going and we got a project up in that time and we kind of revived and then Mark came back. Was that the Secret River? It was the Secret River, yeah. What was the genesis of that? I mean, and it seems interesting to hear you say that because, you know, you're still operating the business in the hope that the two of you can still work, but yes. independently he's off doing what he's doing. Yes. But, so that really just signifies a, a really strong bond between the two of you around, you know, around life and, you know, the, the, the bigger thing that we're working on here. And Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, it's – look, I, I had to stay on because I had to try and find some other work uh, myself because we weren't generating any income at the time. So Mark got that job. Uh, and I decided to continue on with a couple of the Ruby projects that we were working on, like the Secret River, and that happened to by various... Um, so had you secured the rights to the Secret River from the publishing company or the author? Had, uh, we, that- uh, yes, we had secured the rights many years before this. Right. So we'd already been working on developing the project for about five years. So does that have by a this time point. frame, you know, on it when you get the rights to something to do something like that in particular? Uh, well, look, usually just a... A quick snapshot summary, most film and TV projects in the Australian system pretty well take seven years to get up from the day... Seven years? Seven years. <laughs> from the day that you decide you want to do it to the day you start shooting. And, and so just excuse my ignorance here, but, uh, okay, they take seven years to get but I imagine a lot fall by the wayside then in the seven years. Oh, so abs- abs- you need a pipeline you, for a lot of projects. You need a pipeline. And we we in our early days uh, of our first business plan, we kind of worked out on a statistical analysis that we had you had to have 10 projects in development for one to come to fruition. God. So it was a 10% success rate, which is kind of common in R&D in other industries. Um, But you've got to invest time in 10 to get one. Right. Now, the way the industry's gone the last few years, we pretty well concluded, and again, we had the stats to back it up, that it's one in 15 now. Right. So we always had to have at least 10 and maybe 15 projects going because... Each of them has a long lead time and you've got to then plan so that they land one after the other yes. so that you don't have a big income hole. Yes. 
Um, so this is Mark and so, I spent a lot of time planning in this way. So with the Seeker River, I mean, how did that get you know off the ground? Okay, well, um, by the time Mark went to Bangladesh and I was still working on it, we'd already been working on it for six, five years, and the the start was getting the rights to the book. Um, I was a big fan of the book. Um, I rang the agent and said, you know, is it possible to get the film and TV rights? And they said, oh, look, we're not looking at um, uh, kind of negotiating those rights until the Booker Prize shortlist comes out next year. So I thought, oh, okay, we'll wait till the Booker Prize shortlist uh, is announced. And then six months hence, listen to ABC Radio one morning, Booker Prize shortlist is announced, Secret River's on it. I go into the office and I'm going to ring the agent to try and pitch for this um, the rights. And it was one of those nervous phone calls, like ringing your first girlfriend for a date. <laughs> and it was, it was a handset. It wasn't a mobile. And my hand went to the handset and picked it up and dialed a few numbers. Put the phone and down. And then I put the phone down. <laughs> and I did this for about 20 minutes. I was really <laughs> nervous. And, um, and Mark was in the office with me, by the way. He was watching it on the other, other desk. And, um, eventually I got onto the agent and it was 9.20 a.m. And the agent said to me, oh, I'm sorry, you're too late. We've had so many phone calls about it from all over the world. We're not having any further discussions about the rights. We've got so many offers. Oh, God. So my hesitancy to ring up the girlfriend for the first date was a major drama here. Very disappointed. Um, you know, put it down to experience and then waited for the announcement as to who had actually got the rights from all the pitches that they'd had. Yeah. And... Um, there was no announcement made for the next six or eight months. I thought, that's really odd. And out of curiosity, eight months later, I rang the agent back. And the agent said, oh, don't talk to me about that. We had so many pictures from people all over the world and the author, Kate Grenville, hated every one of the, the proposals that oh, were put. They didn't understand the book. They, she didn't want it treated in the way. So we've decided not to do it. Oh, wow. And I said, oh, look, um, I've got a team of interested people here who, you know, I know it's late in the piece, but would you take a pitch from us at this stage? Now, I just happened to be in um, uh, an arrangement with a very well-known screenwriter, Jan Sardi, who'd been an Oscar nominee, who'd uh, um, written the script for Shine, which was Oscar-nominated, yes. and the acclaimed director, Fred Skepsy, all of whom were fans of the book. And they'd said to me at some point, if you ever get the rights to that, we'll do it. So I said to the agent, oh, do you know Fred Skepsy and Jan Sardi? Oh, yeah. Um, could we do a pitch? And she said, oh, look, everybody else has. I suppose you guys can do one. <laughs> um, so we got together and wrote up a one-page pitch based right. on our understanding of the book, sent it through to the agent who rang back a week ago, a week later and said, um, shown it to Kate, the author, Kate Grenville, and uh, it's far and away the best pitch that we've had. You guys can have the rights. Oh, fantastic. So that process took a year. God. From wanting it to getting it. Yeah. And then from then you go through a script writing stage mm. and that the script writing takes, uh, you know, you have to do one draft and another then another. Um, there's always delays in between that. That took four or five years. And um, by the time we had a script ready to uh, that was financeable, um, we were five years down the track. God, it's a long process, um, isn't it? And then from that point, um, to get the finance when you have the script ready is another year. And then to make it is another year, to film it, and then to edit and post-produce it and market it's another year. So you're up to eight years. I remember talking to you about this a few years back, um, and when you watch the miniseries, which we you know, obviously 
was um, so successful. The location was was interesting because it was the Hawkesbury River, wasn't it? In terms of, and I remember thinking at the time, you know, when you know, how do you find a place that you know is you know, uninhabited, which is now habitat? <laughs> you know, like it's. Well, I mean, I remember that it was a really interesting story. Would you would you like to share? Oh that? yes, yes. Uh, well, look again. So yes, the Secret River is set in eighteen thirteen. It's set on the Hawkesbury River up north of Sydney at the time of the early settlement of Sydney Town. And the Hawkesbury River was just being kind of opened up to farming. Um, but what was happening, as was typical of colonial settlement or invasion or whatever you want to call it, um, white settlers, uh, colonial settlers went up into that region and basically, you know, took land that tribal um, Aboriginal people had been using for, um, you know, countless generations. And there was conflict uh, between between them, uh, and um, Kate Grenville had kind of researched some of this and fictionalised an account of this conflict. So it was about first contact between yep. uh, colonial settlers and yep. uh, Indigenous Australians. Two worlds colliding. Two worlds colliding, and a uh, very powerful book and told in the form of a story of a family that settles there. Um, so we had to... F- ideally shoot shoot the thing on the Hawkesby River to create the vibe of the Hawkesby, which is quite spectacular and specific. Uh, but, of course, you go up to the Hawkesby River, as we did with our whole kind of key crew, and we went up on a, a, a big ferry one day with a ferry captain who took us all up around the tributaries of the Hawkesby. Wherever you look, there's a road overpass, a telegraph pole, <laughs> the glint of a holiday house in the trees. You cannot get a pristine view anywhere. And the only place that we thought we could get a pristine view, and I, I was at the kind of vanguard of this. I said, oh, look over there. That looks like we can film over there. And we're up this tributary of the Hawkesbury, and it looked really clear and clean, and there was no kind of things to interrupt the view. And the ferry captain kind of pulled us in close to the bank, and I got out and waded through the kind of knee-deep water onto the bank, thinking, oh, this is great land here. And I got onto the bank and sank in three feet of mud. And there was three feet of mud for 150 metres. That's why there was no one there. <laughs> That's why there was nobody there. So you can't shoot on the Hawkesbury. We ended up fortuitously finding a location up at Lake Tyres. How did you do this? How did you get there? Okay, so <laughs> remember the filing cabinet that I mentioned, <laughs> yeah. our, our old filing cabinet, right? Yes. Uh, it has a hand in this. Um, uh, at the time that we got the rights to the book, which was six years before the incident I'm about to describe to you, we Film Victoria, the state government film agency, had offered us some uh, uh, money to do a location survey <coughs> to try to find a location for the Secret River because they wanted it to be filmed in Victoria oh, right. for Victorian business purposes. Okay. And um, so they put a professional location manager on the task for three weeks to go all over Victoria to look at locations and take photos of them and draw up maps. But because our process took so long, we'd forgotten that that had even happened. Um, and it was not relevant to us at that early stage. So we put the f- document in the filing cabinet. Um after the Hawkesbury trip, which was all disappointing, um, we didn't know what to do, scratching our heads, where we were going to film. And I happened to be pulling out the filing cabinet one day and um, uh, for something else, and this old file of the location survey from five years before dropped out onto the floor. Oh, come on. And I said to Mark, oh, I remember this? Oh, we started to leaf through it. And there was all these locations <laughs> in Victoria, one of which was at Lake Tyres, 
And I, dro- I remember I drove up over the Easter weekend because I didn't want to waste the cast and crew time if this was a wild goose chase. And I went up there over an Easter weekend using the map coordinates that were on this document and went down this fire trail right into this remote little section of Lake Tyres and you come around a corner over a fence through a gate and all of a sudden there's this expanse of water um, of Lake Tyres, the, the deep tributaries of Lake Tyres, totally pristine. Wow. With cliff escarpments, very, very reminiscent of the Hawkesbury. And that's where we shot. God, isn't that amazing? <laughs> so, Just lots, <laughs> lots of fortune, really. So that was Mark's old filing cabinet from his previous office, which we had. It had a hand in us finding that thing, you know. So and when you sort of concluded, because I, um, you know, it was so successful, did you have a sense working on it while it was all unfolding it was going to be as successful as it was? Um, look, it was, it felt, um, it felt important to be doing it because mm. it was a treatment of um, the very early missteps which haven't truly haven't really been redressed of um, the, w- the way that colonial settlers treated Aboriginal people and it felt important that we tell that story mm. and everybody who worked on it, both the Indigenous um, cast and crew and white Australian cast and crew, we all felt there was a level of importance to it. But you never know how things are going to turn out. So, so we just went about our daily business filming it. It was a hard shoot because we were up at Lake Tyres. It was freezing cold, middle of winter, mm. 150 people up there camping out. It wasn't easy to do. Um, uh, so, look, we just went through the process. But then uh, when we got to the editing stage and showed it to um, – I'll never forget this day – to one of the ABC executives who had financed it. We were really nervous about showing it. Uh, the ABC executive turned to myself and – Mark and the director in the edit suite and said, that is one of the best pieces of television I've ever been involved with. Congratulations. And it was only at that point that we got an objective view of it. And I thought, oh, oh gee, you know, maybe we did do it well. Yes. Um, so, um, so there wasn't really until that point, there was, it's hard to get a read on it because you're in it, but have an objective party say that. And then the ABC supported it so well. They gave it a great time slot. They did so much publicity for it. Um, so that helped its stakes in a way. Yeah, and great cast too. Oh, and we look at we had a, a wonderful look. It was a truly, truly um, um, powerful experience, and you know, um, it was one of those things that Mark and I saw that through together over all of those years. Like it was just a big, long range project, and it but it came off. And yeah, but as a couple of mates working together that have been together, you know, right, you know, all those years that, you know, it must have been extraordinarily satisfying, you know, as a, look, as a partnership look to deliver it, that. A look, it, it truly was, and um, you know, we were, uh, yeah, look, it, it was a wonderful, uh, wonderful experience, and um, I guess it was. We'd always wanted to do something, as per your quote from our website, that was bold, thought provoking, and must see. Mm. We yeah. always had aim to do that. Now mm. to do something like that. Uh, you've got to work real hard yeah. and you've got to have a collaborative environment because the work is so hard and long range. Yes. So I think it's because of our partnership over a long period of time that we're able to pull something off like that. Yes. You can't just do it out of the blue. You've got to have an environment that encourages it. Yes. And so, yeah, it, look, it was very satisfying for us to do it. And when did it, it was, what, 2016? 20, 15, I think it was 2015. Yeah. yeah, 2015 is when it went to air. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, look, that was uh, one of the big things we've, we've, 
we've done more recently, but we've done a lot of stuff uh, at Kath and Kim, as I said, and uh, Cracker Jack. Um, we did a series called Bed of Roses, which was a kind of a comedy drama that ran on the ABC for three years, mm. and that alone took up at least four or five years of our lives, like yeah. full-time. It was a really yeah. big job. So, yeah, we, we just were busy all the time. Accomplished a lot. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, when – I mean, that was, that's 2015-16. When did Mark actually become ill? <sighs> well um, – uh, Mark had had about 2005, he'd had a heart attack. Okay. Um, and, um, but was uh, recovered from that quite well and went on a regime. He gave up smoking. Um, and basically by 2007, he was back to better than he, better than he had been previously. Right. So for, he, he, and he was always going off for his yearly, um, cardi, cardiologist appointment and always reporting back to me how he was, but he was always doing quite well. So that, um, illness had kind of faded as a, a thing between us. So, yep. you know, we'd have colds and flus and that's about it. Um, so nothing at all, uh, no indication of anything until maybe this time last year. Uh, so we're in November now. Um, Probably November uh, 2019, Mark reported to me that he'd cooked some sauerkraut at home on the weekend, but that it had reacted very badly and he had a really bad stomach upset. Right. And over the next month or so, he reported the stomach upset and he ended up going to the doctor who thought it was an ulcer. Mm. Uh, and um, he put on ulcer medication and uh, that didn't seem to work. And then... Uh, Probably the week before Christmas last year, he went in to have some more tests and he came in to see me on, I think, the 23rd of December. Well, we both turned up in the office as we had done all those years every day. And he said, Steve, I've been to the doctor, had some tests, and I've got pancreatic cancer. Oh, God. This is December the 23rd. Oh. Um, and, uh, and I've got to go in for chemo, uh, you know, in January. Um, so this was just like, uh, I mean, uh, I even can't kind of put words on it now. It was just such a shock, but it was a shock to him because he yes. thought he had a stomach ulcer. upset or an ulcer or something, a sauerkraut kind of provoked uh, kind of irritation, but it was very serious. Um, so this was just like, uh, um, it was just overwhelming and plus it was Christmas. So we had that day. And then from that point on, Mark had to, it was Christmas and he had to deal with this with his family. Oh, God. And I saw him that once on that day. Um, and then, uh, he, we had two weeks off during which time he was dealing with the preparations for the chemo. And then, um, I didn't see him again for a little while because he had to go straight in for chemo. So I think we didn't catch up till late January when he was in the midst of chemo, but he came back into the office at that point. Um, and he had a very positive attitude and had decided he's going to dive into the chemo process, do everything that the doctors, doctors had told him and do his level best to have a positive attitude to try and kind of get through it, knowing the pancreatic cancer. It's not a good one. It's not a good one. Mm. Um, so there was no warning of this prior to November 2019. So as a, from a business perspective, was there lots going on at this stage? Or, I mean, obviously we're pre-COVID, so... Uh, yeah, no. But, uh, look, there was... We didn't have a big 
project that we had one small project we were about to film in January. Or we were in the middle of filming and we had a bit more filming to do, which was a documentary for the Discovery Channel. Um, and we had some other collaborators working with us on that. So that was kind of in hand in a way. Um, but we did, still did have to finish it. Um, but because, uh, but we'd come out of a very busy year where we'd done a few other things and wrapped them up. So we were entering one of these phases in 2020 where we were about going into a more planning phase. Development business. Development development. phase. And, um, so we had to finish off the documentary I'd described, but, but in any case, we were going into a development phase, which is busy for us because you've got to do, get the business plan out and do the planning and do the cash flow projections. But there wasn't immediate external demands on us. And that was fortuitous because possibly we couldn't have managed the, external demands, um, big external demands like the Secret River, for instance. Um, how, in just, just on that, though, I mean, how would, um, you know, some in a small business where there's a, a partnership between two people and, you, you, you know, you, you're just about to start filming the Secret River and that happens, I mean, how the hell would you cope with that? Well, look, I don't know. And, I, I mean, the Secret River just of itself was a massive and very stressful project. So to add tragedy and grief on top of it I, I just cannot conceive of what it would be like I mean I think the project at, at the stage that it's about to film it's a runaway train of finance and legal responsibility so there's no way it could stop mm. you might get I mean I would get time off for bereavement leave mm. but the project there's that old saying the trains left the station or the trains left the station or the show must go on yes that's what that means mm. and you can't stop the show because of <clears throat> individual circumstances. Um, now, of course, people would be compassionate and, and one or other of us in that circumstance would be looked after, but you couldn't stop the show. Mm. So January, Mark's late January, he's in, in chemo. In chemo, coming into work, um, you know, started to lose his hair and all the classic things, but in such good spirits. And he was, look, I would reckon that uh, he probably work three days a week. All right. And we were doing uh, the tail end of that documentary that I mentioned to you. Um, so he was, he and I were coming in every day doing that and he, in a way, didn't really want to talk about the illness too much because he wanted to keep a positive forward-thinking attitude of, I'm just going to continue. Yes. Um, you know, so, so he was very much almost not wanting to talk about it. Mm. And I was happy for that because, you know, if positive attitude is going to help let's in go with minimising the uh, um, impact of the cancer, let's go with it. Mm. So I was very much reading those signs and and, um, and trying to do business as mm. usual. But underneath it, and I'm sure Mark was the same, you were just feeling this kind of growing sense of doom mm. uh, and, and sadness like... Uh, you know, just, you know, I'd sometimes look over across the desk, and Mark would be working, we'd be talking, and and I would just be overwhelmed with this feeling of this is finite. We're so all it's finite. An anticipatory grief. Grief, yeah. Um, and also, so sorry for Mark. Like he he was sixty four, um, and otherwise very healthy. We were busy. We still had lots of projects we wanted to do. Um, life was pretty normal in a, in every other sense. Yes. And to have this kind of this background dark cloud was, uh, you know, not easy. But we tried to overcome it and do our daily business, basically. Yeah. And so, obviously, uh, things changed. Yeah, yeah. Mark. And what happened? 
uh, well. So Mark went through the first round of chemo under the circumstances I've just described there, and he got really good results, um, very positive results in, in that the cancer had reduced. Um, they gave him a couple of weeks off before going to the second round of chemo, and they were very, very positive regarding that because they were also investigating some kind of new therapies that were emerging for pancreatic cancer. And the general plan was that if he could get positively through another round of chemo, some of these newer treatments, which were showing really strong results, might be he might be able to do those. Mm-hmm. So there was this sense that, you know... Just get through to there. Get through to there. So he had two weeks off, um, and it was about about to start the new round of chemo, and this was, would have been in um, May, I think. So the first round of chemo went January, February, March, and then he had a, probably three or four weeks off, was about to go in, in, into it in May. Now, COVID had hit us by this point. So in March, while he was in the midst of that first round of chemo, he was advised to stay home because uh, you don't want to be out circulating. Mm. So from March, I didn't see Mark. Mm. Um uh, he, he was advised to work from home, not go out, not see people. So we spoke on the phone every day. Mm. Um, so yeah, our business continued, positive attitude. Um, uh, going into the second round of chemo in early May, on a Friday afternoon, um, we had our daily phone call to work out what are we doing on Monday. So we had. This was like five o'clock Friday afternoon or three o'clock Friday afternoon. Oh, well, I'll, I'll do that. You'll do that. Yeah, we ticked off a list and uh, speak to you on Monday, Steve. So, yeah. 24 hours later, I got a phone call from his one of his sons to say that he'd passed away uh, on a Saturday morning. And oh. as, as it turned out, um, he contracted a bacterial infection because of his low immunity yeah. because of the chemo. Um, he was admitted to hospital and they suspected it might have been COVID for, at first, but it turned out not to be. And it was a bacterial infection which his immune system couldn't fight off and it caused a, a you know, just a, a toxic shock type reaction and he passed away very quickly. And uh, I mean, that phone call, I mean, let alone for the family, it must have been so terrible. But uh, that phone call 24 hours after having had a Casual, what are we doing on Monday Monday. conversation? This was just like beyond, beyond belief, really. Uh, so I was just felt blank at that point, just totally blank. Um, yeah. So, and then, you know, the poor family, like I said, I ended up, uh, you know, I did over the next little while spoke to all of the Mark's four children and his wife, whom I knew very well over all those years going back because all the kids were little and all of that. Um, you know, so, uh, it it was a very, very difficult for them. Um, but you know, I then started to realize that I'd been, um, in an office with Mark all day, every day for 20 years. And it's very sad. It's sad. It's really sad. Really sad. And, and, um, you know, we didn't, really say goodbye no. because this was unexpected. Mm. Um, I think I'd been thinking that we might have to have a conversation about what we are going to do if Mark passes away with the pancreatic cancer, which might be down the track. Down the track. Mm. So, you know, sometime 
during 2020, maybe we would have had that discussion. But it hadn't been the time for it. And then all of a sudden, Mark was locked up at home because of COVID. And he's gone. He's gone. And, uh, no, it's, uh, it was just, oh, look, I'm still, uh, still can't quite believe it really, but it's, uh, that's just how it happened. Yeah. But the business is, you know, I mean, you've still got to, I imagine you've got projects and people, you know, you know there's business development and there's things happening and you've got uh, responsibilities and you've got 20 years of, you know, this legacy together. It's, it, it doesn't stop the next day. So how have you found, you know, the emotional wherewithal and the physical wherewithal to keep going? Because I imagine it's been quite a toll on you. Well, look, it, it, it has. Um, and, and of course, this is all in the COVID scenario where, where all of a sudden you just, all this is happening in my office at home now. Um, so that, look, the first thing to say is that in the immediate aftermath of Mark's passing, we announced it. And, you know, because Mark and I had been together for all of that time, we were quite, a lot of contacts in the industry, know a lot of people. And the, um, the support that came back my way and the accolades and kind of love and respect for Mark that came back to me from the industry was like overwhelmingly good. Like it was, I, I, I was just, you know, the experience was, gee, did, People really notice us that much, you know, yeah. like it was just incredible. So at the time of the worst difficulty, there was this huge wave of support and love and, you know, picked you up. Oh, it was, it, it, and it was quite amazing. Mm. Um, and, uh, so I reckon the first few months I was carried by that. Um, then there was the, uh, of course, we had the funeral, a COVID, you know, minimalist funeral, mm. but I was, very fortunate to be able to go to it. And that was a beautiful, although very small and confined ceremony. Um, and the day, that day, uh, you know, Mark was uh, buried. It was just a beautiful day at the cemetery. A uh, sunny, warm autumn, uh, so peaceful. And I remember feeling a strong sense of peace at that moment off the back of all of the, um, the support from uh, the industry. And then the connection with the family, um, and, um, you know, my partner Belinda was kind of, uh, with me through all of this and, um, she just allowed me to talk and, you know, uh, reflect in the way that I am now. Uh, so I, I felt incredibly supported. And as I said, on the day of the burial, it was so peaceful. Mm. So, oh, this, uh, cause Mark was also a person of great religious faith. Right. And um, I kind of felt there that there is another life for him. Uh, you know, there is a new life. Yeah. And um, and the, the atmosphere of the day really convinced me of that. Mm. So I came away from the burial thinking there's another life, there truly is a lo- another life for Mark, um, and we have a legacy. And... I started to reflect on the legacy, all that we've done, some of these stories that yes. I've told you, all the fun that we had. So I started to get all these feelings. Oh, yeah, that was a, a sense of kind of completeness, I suppose, mm. that there was a lot of – we'd achieved a lot. Yeah. Um, and then there's a legacy of the past, but there's also the things, the development we've been working on. And there's a couple of projects there which – Mark had been doing more than I, so I've kind of taken over responsibility for some of those, and I want to see those through 
for Mark's sake. Mm. So, um, so yes, there's a lot to do. And I guess the workload increased because mm. there were, I took over some of those projects and just, there's just more of an ad- admin load when one person's doing the work the two normally do. So I would say since the, that, the day of Mark's funeral and burial, I've been really, really busy. Yes. <laughs> and I, you know, even as we're talking now, this is, I, I don't think I've had the full chance to reflect on it. Um, in a really kind of easy, take a deep breath way, just because of the treadmill. Yes. Uh, which has been magnified by COVID, of course. Do you feel like you need to do that, though? I do. Oh, <laughs> I think I'm going to get up out of this studio and uh, go and I rode my push bike here. I'm going to go on a nice leisurely ride. And um, my partner Belinda and I are actually going away for the weekend um, to uh, down to the beach, and it's the first time we will have done that since... Like a lot of Melbourneans. Like a lot of yeah. Melbourneans. So I think this weekend... So it's this is a like fortuitous discussion, Milton, because... It, feels like now is the time for me to start processing this at a deeper way. We, and, and, and on, on so many levels for yeah. you, isn't it? Not just the, you know, the, you know, the emotional connectedness yeah. of a, you know, of a great friendship, but what do you want to do with the business? Well, wow, that, and that's, and look, you know, people have asked me that over time and whenever I get asked it, I just go blank because I just don't know. And I, and, because, you know, there's this sense of legacy of wanting to see things through. But there's also another thing that comes up that maybe because of the sense of completion, which I'll describe, maybe I should just let it rest. And, um, you know, maybe I should wind it up. And uh, But look, I, I just don't know. These are the competing pathways. Do you think it would have changed if you and Mark, in terms of that, that thinking you just described, that... If you'd had the discussions, you know, even pre him being sick, about okay, let's let's talk about if, as a small business, if one of us, what would we want the other one to do? What do we think is practical to do? You know, how does that affect you know the project? I mean, would that have made any difference? Do you think? Or uh, look, I think it would have. Uh, look, I think it would have actually. And and now that we're talking about it, and now I can, you know, I'm in this position of not quite knowing which way to move. I think it would have been good to have. A sense of what Mark would have wanted in these sort of circumstances, but by the same token, I think I know what he would have wanted. Yeah, and I think that would be—I know Mark would say, "You do what you think is best." So I don't think he would want me to jump one way or the other. I—I I, I know intuitively that it, because I would say the same to him: "You do what you think is best." So I'm. Pretty sure that's what he would have said, even if we had have had that discussion. Um, so now that I remind myself of that, I've got to actually work out what is best, and that's a bit I don't know. And consider yourself in the whole equation. Uh, as that's well. correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, Steve, look, thanks for for joining us today um, in this discussion, which. You know, when we think about small businesses around the country, there's just so many people, you know, that are in these types of situations that this may occur to, that if they could just have that discussion, it would be useful. But, you know, it is a lovely thing to be able to, you know, sit here today and talk to you about it and, and just listen to you reflect back on what's been an amazing body of work that you and Mark created together and sound like you had a lot of fun along the way too. Oh, look, we did. And uh, just on that point of small business, what I've realised in this is that people put their heart and soul into it. Mm. Like a small business is not just a shop front. It is no. your life. Yeah. It is your life. 
it's uh, you know there are many people as you say who are that's what their life is and and it's really good to be able to reflect in this sort of way about you know how you make it work in these sort of difficult circumstances so I appreciate the time to to have this reflection yeah been great having you mate thanks okay. thanks Milton yeah. Milton Walters, and you've been listening to Adapting in My Grief. One of the goals of this podcast is to talk about how we deal with grief in the workplace and how we can possibly do it better. So head over to our website, adapting.com.au, to learn more or indeed share a story or an insight that you might have that you think could be of value to this end. During the conversations throughout the series, if there are any triggers that cause you concern, anxiety, or make you feel in any way uncomfortable, please seek professional assistance through some of the many great organisations providing invaluable mental health support and services, for example, Beyond Blue and Lifeline, to name just a few. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please feel free to rate and review it and also to subscribe to it. This podcast is produced by Neely Media in Melbourne. Additional sound engineering by I Explain IT in Port Ferry. And the music is by Sophia Whitney. 